NLT that we're going to read through as a whole just because it's a, a simpler translation to read. And then as I deal with the text and go through it, we'll use the ESV, which is what we typically use on a Sunday. But I think for reading's sake, this is better. Let me give you a little bit of context that I think will help bring this psalm to light. The sons of Korah uh, were part of the Levite tribe, and the Levites were the people whom God had designated into the tribe of Israel uh, to, to take care of worship. Now, the sons of Korah were a specific clan within the Levite tribe, and their specific calling was music. They were the worship leaders of the Old Testament. Okay, so this psalm was written by the sons of Korah, if you look in there. That's part of the original that describes that to us. So what I want you to see is, one, who wrote it? They were worship leaders. They were the music leaders. That was what they did for a living. That was their calling. And the second thing you need to understand about this psalm is it most likely was written while the Israelites were in exile, meaning the Babylonians had come in and removed them from the land, and they were now captives to this pagan nation, the Babylonians, and they went on this long journey where they were stripped from their land. So they were no longer in Israel. They were no longer near the temple in which the sons of Korah would have led worship. Okay, important context. So as you read it, it'll help you understand uh, why they're saying what they're saying. So they write, as the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Now remember, in the Old Testament, compared to the New Testament, they didn't have access to God like we do now. Yes, God's general presence was everywhere. I mentioned that last week and what that's like. But his unique, intimate presence dwelled in the holy of holies in the temple. And for them to experience that, they had to be in that location. That's something that we take for granted as Christians. All we need is to gather as God's people, and the Holy Spirit indwelling in us brings us to that place where we can have that intimate fellowship with God. They did not enjoy that in the same way. They didn't have the ease of access to it like we do today. And so imagine if you never felt or sensed God's presence with you at all unless you were gathered in a unique way in that spot and now you were completely removed from that place where you could be connected with God. That's what they were experiencing. Day and night I have only tears for food while my enemies continually taunt me saying, where is this God of yours? So they're saying they were discouraged, they were depressed, they were describing themselves as crying day and night. It's like my food, it's what I eat, it's basically my meal in the midst of being in an enemy territory where they're laughing at him and saying, hey, where is this God of yours? Now Old Testament again, in every Old Testament nation was represented by their own God. And so if you lived in Old Testament times, the strength of your God was portrayed by the strength of your nation. So if some other nation came and wiped you out, it was because their God was stronger than your God. So imagine how they felt while they're in the midst of this Babylonian nation and they're just mocking them saying, hey, great God you guys have, man, that must be some temple you guys worship in. I mean, where is he now? We just totally wiped you out. Now the backstory is that God told the Israelites that's exactly what would happen when they fell away from him that he would send a foreign nation to wipe them out and bring them out of their land until they repented of the idols they were worshiping and then he would restore them. We know that eventually happens. But in the midst of that, you can imagine for those who were worship leaders, it was a desperate time. It says, my heart is breaking 
As I remember how it used to be, I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of a great celebration. Why am I discouraged? <clears throat> Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Now you're gonna notice that refrain three times through this psalm and the next psalm. It's kind of the chorus of the song. He says, now I am deeply discouraged, but I will remember you even from the distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan, from the land of Mount Mazar. I hear the tumult of the raging seas as your waves and surging tides sweep over me. But each day, the Lord pours his unfailing love upon me, and through each night I sing his songs, praying to God who gives me life. O oh God, my rock, I cry, why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Their taunts break my bones, they scoff. Where is this God of yours? Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. The next one. Now this is Psalm 43, and it kind of continues this. It says, Declare me innocent, O God. Defend me against these ungodly people. Rescue me from these unjust liars, for you are God, my only safe haven. Why have you tossed me aside? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? Send out your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them lead me to your holy mountain, to the place where you live. There I will go to the altar of God to God, the source of all my joy. I will praise you with my harp, O God, my God. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. Here's what I want you to see. Four situations that may lead to discouragement or depression when they happen in our lives from this passage. The first one is this, and then we'll look at the sections in the passage. I have a prolonged separation from God and his purpose for me. I have a prolonged separation from God and his purpose for me. Let me show you this uh, within the psalm, and then we'll uh, flesh it out a little bit. So if we go back to Psalm 42 at the beginning, we see this being fleshed out. It says, the deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, God. My soul thirsts for you. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist is asking this question, when am I going to be able to come back and appear before you? When can I be at the temple? This, this is what I do. I'm a worship leader, and not just worshiping as a leader, not just my job, but as a person, I want to be in your presence. And they're longing to be in God's presence, and yet they're in exile, separated from God. Not only physically are they separated from God and unable to worship him like they once had, but even vocationally. They're depressed because the Korites, that's what they were created to do. That was what they were designated to do. Their purpose in life was to lead others in music and worship. And not only have they been physically separated from God's presence, but even personally, their very purpose in life has been stripped from them. Imagine yourself if what you feel is your calling in your career 
in this world, or, or whether it be a vocation, or whether it be a, a, a service, or a, a hobby, or whatever those things are, if that was completely removed from you, and it was no longer a possibility for you to do what you feel like you're uniquely created to do. That's what they were experiencing at this point. Not only a spiritual separation, but in a sense of vocational separation. See, some of you are experiencing this or have experienced this in much the same way. You're separated from, from what's normal for you. Maybe it's your job. <clears throat> Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've had a transition, and that transition has caused you to have to work in an area that you're not really excited about. But it's just what you have to do in this season. Those kinds of things can lead to discouragement in our lives. You might be separated from, and not necessarily just a, a vocational thing, but maybe it's a, a familial thing. Maybe it's something you're familiar with. You were in this land, or you've lived here, you grew up here, and you're comfortable, and you knew all the hot spots, and you knew all the people, and everyone knew you, and now suddenly you're living a long ways away from that, whether it's geographically or culturally from that spot, and you feel like you're totally mixed up. You were taught to ride your bike forward your whole life and that's all you've ever done and now you live in a place where they all ride their bikes backwards. And what was so normal for you in one setting now is taking you so much extra time to do the same things that you always used to do because everything is very different. Not wrong, just different. And you're separated from those things that you're used to, whether it be family, whether it be a vocation, whether it just be a spiritual thing. Some of you, it may be a situation that's spiritual like this where you had been grown up in a church or you'd gone to church or committed to church for some time and then all of a sudden life got busy or some situation happened and in the midst of that, you just kind of <clears throat> forgot about that. You separated from church and just life happened in a sense and you let that go. And for a long period of time, God really wasn't a very significant part of your life. And when that happens, when those things happen, you can become very discouraged. Sometimes it can be just a, a slow, gradual process, not just one big striking event. And before you know it, you find yourself in a spot where you never intended to be. I know Personally, as I reflected upon this psalm and a lot of the psalms uh, throughout my journey, I found some of the things that were very true uh, in my own journey with these issues. Uh, two in particular that I'll, that I'll highlight. Uh, first was living in a culture that's very different from my own. Not wrong, just different. And you feel a bit lost. You feel a bit alone in some ways and you go out and it's like wow people don't look like me and they don't talk the same way I do they don't think about things the same way that I do and and there's not again a right or a wrong in that it's just something that's very different and in the midst of my of my journey and raising my family in a place that's very different and very different from my own culture and very far from my own family I didn't realize what is a common thing that many people have written articles about, many people have written books about this, especially for missionaries, of just the day-to-day -day stress that's there, that's just a normal part of living in a culture that's very different from your own. You might experience that if you went to a place where you were very different. 
In fact, it's kind of funny this last week, as many of you know, we were, our offices were closed for a while because we had our national conference for our denomination. And so I took a lot of our staff up to Austin to the church that was hosting it. And if you know the roots of our denomination, the EFCA was a Norwegian and, and Swedish group that it migrated or came across. And they, and they were leaving the state church of that time because the state church was just kind of this you know, dead organization. And it was a group of people that said, we believe there's more to our spirituality than just these rules and these guidelines that have been kind of thrust upon them. And so it was a, a neat spiritual movement that kind of came through the Midwestern part of our nation and then from there spread out and now is much more diverse. But the roots of it is very much an Anglo-Swedish type of group of people. And if you know us crazy Swedes and Norwegians, you know where they call us the frozen chosen. Right, we're, we're just kind of, you know, there. We're not real exciting. But it was interesting as we went to Austin and it was packed with all these white people around that the guys on our staff and gals on our staff there from Laredo were kind of finally looked at me and they said, is this what you feel like every day? And I just had to laugh. It's, and, and I can see that. It's kind of the weird. We do weird things. Us white people do some really weird things. I didn't realize. I thought they were normal because I grew up in it until I came down here and realized, why do we do things like that? I kind of like how they do it here in these situations. But that's a natural stress that happens to all of us. And when you're removed from your normal scenario, those things happen. Another area in which I, f I found myself wrestling with this and not realizing it in my own journey was as our church grew, and I moved into this role a lot quicker than I had imagined uh, from, from a lot of circumstances that took place. As our church grew very quickly, uh, it added a lot more people. And I, one of the things I've noticed with people come problems. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. If you've ever had one kid and it's kind of safe, it's kind of cool, then you had two kids, and it's not like having two kids, it's like having ten. It's like they multiply, and you keep doing that. You, they're, they're huge blessings, but lots of problems come with that, and the same is true in our church. And so not only were there greater pastoral duties, which I enjoy that, I love that. It doesn't mean I can do it all, but that's what I feel like I'm called to do as a pastor. But one of the other elements I was not aware of was as a group grows, the organizational and administrative aspect of it multiplies significantly as well. And it is very important for the health of a group to do that. Just let me, let me help you imagine this. Let's pretend that this afternoon you were having two couples over for dinner. You probably wouldn't even be thinking about that right now. You'd just get home, you'd wing it, and you'd be good to go. But let me know if I told you that, oh, did I say two couples? I meant 200 are coming over for lunch today, you'd start freaking out because a lot more management, a lot more resources, a lot more organization is required to make that happen. Now take that and bring 800 people into a spot and as well as a lot of other things and you suddenly have a lot more to manage whether it's stewarding the resources that go with that, managing the facility that go with it, making sure that everyone's getting their needs met and we're addressing every situation. And that's not my gifting. But as our church grew, I found more and more of that falling upon my lap 
and not knowing how to handle it until I was able to address that by hiring people that had those kinds of gifts. But we've had those people at times and then we haven't had them. We've had them and we haven't had them. And so in those seasons, I can get at what those Korites felt like. When a lot of that was on my plate, I felt like a fish out of water. Like I was spending a whole lot of time doing things that I really wasn't called to do when I wished I was doing what I was really wired to do. And that was one of the aspects that I think led to my discouragement and depression at times as we went through it. Another thing you see in this passage that I think is really important is this, is I can experience discouragement and depression when I'm in a prolonged trial. When I'm in a prolonged trial. It's interesting, look at these passages because they speak so similar to what we do today in Psalm 42. It says, these things I remember. So here's the Korites, they're remembering what they used to do as I pour out my soul. I remember how I would go to the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. One of the things we do when we're in a prolonged trial, one thing that helps you recognize that you might be in one of those seasons is we start reflecting on the good old days. Oh yeah, God, I remember, man, when we were here, when I lived there, when I grew up there, man, things were just so nice and everything just worked together. I mean, we, all, we love to reflect on the good old days. But let me give you a little tip. The good old days weren't really as good as you remember them to be. We all tend to romanticize the good old days. But when you were in them, you were wishing or hoping that you were going to get to another spot in the next five years or ten years or whatever it is. But our tendency is to remember only what we want to remember. And when we're in a bad spot, we are simply looking for some other place that's better than where we are right now. That was kind of the sons of Korah. They were remembering how great it was. Oh, remember when we led works? Remember when we did that? But if you read anything about Israel's history, especially going into the exile, you'd realize those days were not good days for Israel. But suddenly they look good in comparison to being in the exile. The second thing we see in this passage is, it says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now, they're speaking poetically, as musicians often do, right? They use these metaphors that no one ever understands except them, and they think it's so deep. And we just go like, why are we singing this? You know what I'm talking about, right? But what he's saying is he's talking about God's sovereignty and allowing these things to happen. He's saying, hey, the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Those were common metaphors of just difficulty or struggle or judgment in a person's life was waves. And he's not saying, God, man, you, you hit me with that one wave. Whew, that was a tough one. What does he say? All your waves, all those breakers come over me. See, when you're in a prolonged season of trial, all of us have those trials that hit us. You have a death that comes up unexpectedly, boom, it hits you. You have a health issue, boom, it hits you. But they're not talking about just one that we face regularly. They're talking about one after another 
after another. Think of waves. When waves hit you, have you ever been out in the ocean or swam out deep enough to where you're out, let me be a little over your head, and all of a sudden a wave hits you and it throws you under, and you're struggling, you get your mouth up, just enough time to take a breath, and then the next one hits you, and you feel like you're barely hanging on. And man, you're maybe only like this deep. And they're just hitting you one after another. That's what happens in a prolonged trial. We tend to reflect on the good old days. It seems like God's allowing one tragedy after another. We're going, God, what in the world is going on? Why are you doing these things to me? Those are the kinds of things that often come out of our mouth. The ancient church fathers had a term for this that we've kind of forgotten nowadays. They called it the dark night of the soul. They called it these seasons where it just seems like God is absent and he's just left you there and the world is just taking its beating on you. And that happens to us. Those things happen at times. And when we find ourselves in those kinds of situations, it can lead to incredible discouragement and even a deeper depression. I know personally, in my own life, I was reflecting on these things. And and there was a season uh, of several years in our life where uh, it felt that way. We had some difficult challenges within the church that were tough for me as a new a pastor, and it took several years for me to learn to grow through and figure out, and that took a lot out of me. Uh, in the midst of that, our daughter's uh, medical issues, if you're familiar with that, were quite severe. Our youngest daughter, uh, we spent three months in Houston at Texas Children's Hospital, and she had a 10% chance of living, and there were significant surgeries that went along with that, so it was like a crisis mode. We were separated from our kids a good part of that time. Uh, and, and that was like one wave, but even though we returned after that three-month period and had, you know, what was a miraculous, you know, just circumstance in her life that we're, you know, hugely thankful for, the fact is that continued for many, many more years. We had several years of multiple trips to Houston. In some seasons, we were traveling to Houston every single week. We were driving there and back for about a six-month period. Not to mention the cost during that time was such that probably every year, literally, and that was having insurance, probably five to $7,000 every year for about six years was coming out of our pocket for all the tests that we were having. We were a single income family at that time. Really difficult, seemed like over and over and over again. In the midst of that, we had moved. That was our fifth child and we were in a, a little three bedroom home at the time Kids piled on top of it. We had one child in our closet. Don't tell CPS, but that's where they were at the time. And so we'd bought a foreclosure and we're fixing it up and the contractor that we'd hired uh, didn't finish the job and just left and didn't do everything that was promised and that we'd actually had paid for already by then. And so we ended up having tens of thousands of dollars of ongoing repairs. We had water that literally poured through the roof in one season where we would have to bring in our kids' kiddie pool in one spot and probably six other buckets elsewhere to collect all the water every time it would rain. And then the damage that that did, we had to take care of that. We had to hire a roofer from San Antonio to come down and, and at least get it fixed up. And in the midst of that, our daughter had to go through another whole series of medical procedures. It was gonna cost tens and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so in the midst of that, we realized we had to sell our home. We'd spent 15 years trying to build equity in each of the homes that we'd purchased. And we're two thirds of the way from owning our home outright. And in one moment, all that was gone. 
And many of you know, we moved to a town called Bruni about an hour out of town, not because Bruni is like a vacation town and we just thought, wouldn't it be great to live out here in Bruni? But because the expenses at that time were so overwhelming and we didn't want to carry debt as we move forward that we felt like the rent we could pay out there was so low uh, that it would allow us over those next few years to get back on our feet. And so we lived in an 800 square foot mobile home uh, with no central air. I remember us piling into our living room at times in those 107 degree days and just sitting in front of the window air conditioner trying to stay cool. And the problem was when you put seven people in one room, it gets hot just from that. So we would draw straws to say, who's leaving? So the rest of us, I'm, I'm kidding, that's just a joke. Just trying to lighten it up a little bit. In the midst of all that, we had a capital campaign. And if you've ever been part of a capital campaign, you know that that involves a lot. You get a lot of criticism as a leader. When you do that, everyone questions all that. We were uh, trying to buy or purchase our land, and, and that takes a ton of energy from the leadership of a church to do that. And it was in a season where one thing after another was hitting, and I had very little energy to do that, and yet there we were as a church. That's what we were facing in the midst of those times. And it felt like in that season that one thing after another was hitting us. So I get what the Korites were talking about in terms of a prolonged trial and how that can lead to discouragement and depression. The third thing that you see or a situation we see in this is I can experience discouragement and depression when I've experienced attacks from others, when I'm experiencing attacks from others. These can be physical enemies, they can be spiritual enemies, and sometimes the two are neatly woven together. Let me show you from the passage where, where we see this in several places. The psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me, well, they, who, who's they? Well, when you understand the context, you realize that they are the people who captured them the oppressors, the Babylonians in this case. They say to me all day long, where is your God? So when in the midst of your discouragement, people are attacking you and making you fun of your God or making fun of your situation or, or whatever it might be. And I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Why? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. So he's using physical metaphors like a deadly wound in my bones to speak about what's happening on his soul on the inside. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? So we see that oftentimes uh, physical enemies, in this case predominantly, but really spiritual enemies as well. And in the Old Testament, the other nations represented spiritual enemies. Every other nation and every nation was represented by their own God. And the Bible is clear that there's only one true God. So every other nation, even though they might have some other God, ultimately that God is a creation of Satan himself to deceive them into worshiping something else other than the true God. And the whole purpose of Satan is to wipe out God's plan. And in the Old Testament, the number one thing that Satan went after was God's plan to redeem us as people. And Satan knew the promise that was made to Abraham 
and even before him, that through Abraham a seed would come that would be a blessing to all people. That a person, a Messiah, would be born to that nation that would become the redeemer of us all. So Satan, at that moment, no holds barred. His whole goal in life was to wipe out the nation of Israel physically. Because if he could destroy all the Israelites, then guess what can't happen? No Messiah can be born from the people of the Jewish people that God had promised. He can destroy God's promise. So it was all-out war in a physical sense. So when these physical enemies battled against Israel, it wasn't just a physical thing, it was a spiritual thing. Now we know today that it's not, our real battle isn't flesh and blood. It's the principalities that are behind them, but they're really mixed together. And we need to be aware of that, that those things can come at us from either way, physically or spiritually. These can be unbelievers, and they can even be believers. In fact, uh, this story, I think, is a great one I've mentioned before about Elijah, but if you read in the book of 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings 18 in particular, if you go to that passage, please, I think it's in there. Uh, in 18, Elijah has this huge victory uh, in Israel that had started worshiping these, the, the god Baal and all the prophets of Baal, there's 250 of them, had this big challenge with Israel, or excuse me, with Elijah, one of the few prophets of, of Israel that was left that was faithful to the true God. And if you read it in chapter 18, you see that they had this big showdown, huge showdown, and God showed up in that situation and totally proved himself as real, and as a result, Elijah was able to slaughter all the prophets of Baal. Huge spiritual victory. And then you go to chapter 19, right after that, and this is what happens. As Ahab, who was the king of Israel at that time, told Jezebel, which was his wife, all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow, meaning the life of one of them, Baal, the prophets of Baal, meaning I'm going to kill you, and the gods can do that to me if I don't do that to you. And then it says he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah was show, throwing a little pity party, as we all often do. But one of the things this teaches us is that after great spiritual highs, we can drop into incredible spiritual lows. We can be attacked. And this shows it physically. And if you read the Old Testament, you realize Jezebel was one of the tools of Satan in Israel for a long time. She was a wicked, wicked woman. But what we see physically happening here can happen spiritually in our own lives. If we're naive to thinking when we have a wonderful, great spiritual experience in our life and there's nothing wrong with those things, a place where God really shows up, be prepared because on the heels of that, the devil will do anything he can to knock you right down. And if you're naive to that, 
you can fall prone to this just as Elijah did. I know personally in my own life, uh, I saw this in me, and I'm just going to be real honest with you. Let me just be a little bit raw at this moment. Possibly the most hurtful and damaging wounds a pastor and his family experience are not from enemies outside the church. They're from people right within these walls. That caught me off guard. That caught all of us off guard. People whom you love, people whom we've sacrificed in our life to be part of their lives and to guide them along and and been very vulnerable to, to suddenly have them turn on you, people whom you've served shoulder to shoulder with, to suddenly slander you and tell lies or or criticize in certain ways that um, just aren't true. And I'm not saying that we're above criticism. There's tons of things that I'm worthy of criticizing in my ministry. I, I have no problem with understanding that. But as Christians, we should know how to handle that. We should know that when we have a critical statement that needs to be said, that the Bible says we go to that person and we work it out with them in private before we ever go public. And sometimes you find yourself in situations where everyone else has the privilege, and I say that in quotes, of saying whatever they want about a situation, but you've committed as leaders or as a person to keep in confidence what should remain in confidence, and as a result, you feel incredibly vulnerable. And that was really some hurtful times. Some of the most painful things we've experienced have not come, like I said, from outside. I expect people outside in the community to criticize what we do. I've heard all kinds of crazy things about me, about our family, about us as leaders, and about our church. I just kind of chuckle at that. In fact, we make jokes about that because we expect that's going to happen. But when someone who's within the community does that, I'll just say I may never get over that. I probably will never get over that aspect of ministry. But I can promise this. I will not be naive to it happening anymore. It's just part of that. And I, I say that for you all as well because I know I'm not the only one that's taken wounds from within the church. Many people that I talk to all the time leave the church not because of some, something that was said by an unbeliever. They leave because they were hurt by the very people whom should be loving them. I get that. Now I understand that more now. Thirdly, or fourthly, last one I want to look at in here is, is uh, not necessarily in the text, but it's just maybe personal example or things I've understood uh, as well. And that's this. I, I can experience discouragement and depression when I've experienced prolonged physical stress. Prolonged physical stress. I could probably go to other psalms that David wrote to prove this. I just didn't. So I'm just going to ask you to take my word for it. No doubt our stress can and is aggravated by our immature spiritual responses. I realize that and see that in myself. However, once the damage of this stress is done in our bodies, there's no amount of repenting, there's no amount of praying, there's no amount of Bible reading, there's no amount of faith that can fix that situation at that moment. 
And, and hear me out, I'm being simplistic at best in this, but I'm not saying that God can't heal in a moment if he wants to. He can, and he does at times. But that's not his normal way of operation. If that was the case, then every Christian, after they got into a car accident, could just pray and read their Bible, and every bone in their body that had been busted, every organ that had been damaged, would be immediately fixed. And every stupid thing we ever did, hypothetically speaking, right? We could just pray and repent and all the consequences of it would be gone. So let me separate these two things. What I'm trying to say here is that we as Christians, we as people, need to see our lives more holistically than we often do. And us Christians are probably the worst about this of all people. When our Bible is a lot better and more holistic than we give it credit for. Even if you're 100% at fault for what brought, came into your life, that doesn't mean that simply being aware of what you made or what mistakes you made and repenting of them is gonna immediately fix your situation. Case in point, let's say you leave here after church and you go cruising down McPherson at 140 miles an hour and you get in a horrible car crash because you're a total idiot in driving like that. And you're laying in a body cast and all kinds of medications and painkillers and all that and you realize, man, I was so stupid. God, please forgive me. I was an absolute idiot. I, re I repent. I, I recognize I put so many people's lives in danger. Yada, yada, yada. You go through the whole thing. Do you think God's gonna immediately heal your whole body because you repented? Do you think you could read your Bible enough in the next week to fix everything in your body? Do you think you could pray enough to make all the consequences of that immediately go away? I think we all know the answer to that. So does it mean you have less faith to go to the hospital and allow a doctor to help you physically at that moment get back on your feet to the point where once you have repented and once you have done that and once you are physically healthy again, you can now go back and function better now that you're physically healed. It's just a question. See, I think we as Christians have handled that poorly. I was one of those. I had a hard time wrestling with that issue. I came to its realization before I went through this by the grace of God, but it solidified as I walked through this. And I'm not trying to use my situation as the sudden authority that this is okay to do. I'm saying that this situation helped me better understand situations that I'd never been through before. You see, we as Christians would never go to a type one diabetic and say, you know what? If you just prayed more, if you just read your Bible more, you wouldn't have to take that insulin nor do we do it with a type two who maybe got it in some cases because they ate too much and they just haven't taken care of themselves and that's not the case in all of them, but you, you abuse your body for years and years and years and suddenly you find yourself in that spot where now you have this disease. You wouldn't say, you know what, just repent, read your Bible and pray and stop taking that medicine. No, you'd say, take that medicine, make sure your body's healthy as best you can, but don't fail to address the real issues that may have led to it. And you start diet, a better diet. You start exercising, and maybe after a year, maybe two years, 
you'll be at a spot where you can wean yourself from the medication, Lord willing. And I think the same is true here in these situations, is we have to see things holistically and not just through one lens or the other. Moving on, how do we address these things? Uh, I seek, or I address my discouragement and depression when, first one is I seek to determine its causes. I seek to determine the causes. Here's where we get into the main emphasis of the passage. That was pretty quick, but look at what it says three times. Here's the chorus. The psalmist says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? It says it in verse 5. It says it in verse 11. It says it in verse 43 or chapter 43, verse 5. Three times it says this question. It's a rhetorical question. You need to ask this question. Now, it wove all these circumstances within it in the story, but the point of it is the psalmist is saying, do you understand why you're feeling like you are? Or have you so oversimplified it? Or have you so over-denied it? Or are you just neglecting it altogether? Or are you willing to sit down and say, man, why do I feel this way? Why is my soul like it is? Why does my body feel the way it does? And begin answering those questions. So two things I want you to see under this setting is this. Take time to ask the question or answer this question. Why am I downcast? You can live in denial if you want. Everyone else around you probably sees it and you're unwilling to admit it. I was like that for a long period. Sometimes it happens so gradually that you don't even see it in your life, but other people do. But you need to answer that question. Why? Why am I feeling this way? You need to prayerfully consider your circumstances and your attitude and, and look in these circumstances we see here and see, are, are any of these true in my life? You need to ask other people who are close to you to speak into your life. I'm gonna share in a minute. I went to seek a counselor, a Christian counselor who was familiar with this and had walked through many pastors in this situation in New Braunfels. I spent several months driving up there on a regular basis to meet with him to say, can you help me walk through this? I shared this with the elders. I shared this with some close friends in my prayer group. A lot of people, well, I shouldn't say a lot, a core group of people knew what I was going through at that season. I have a, pa- a group of six pastors that we meet twice a year for three days. They knew all this stuff. They saw me all those times, the mess I was in, all the things I was trying to do to try to fix it. And the many times I thought, maybe I need to leave Laredo and go somewhere else. You don't know how many times I started applying other places and thinking, if I could just get out of here, God would fix me. And I wanted to blame it on my circumstances 100%. You see, if you try to handle it by yourself, you won't handle it. There's one difference I've come to realize between me and the hundreds of pastors that have moral failures every single month in this country. And it's not that I'm a more godly man. It's that I was willing to let some other people into my life in a season where I was really struggling. I know what it's like to experience some of the temptations that these guys feel when your body is that drained not just emotionally and spiritually but physically you are looking for any kind of adrenaline high you can get not to get an adrenaline high 
but even to get to normal. You are so depleted that you need some kind of adrenaline rush just to feel like you're your normal self. You start making everything a crisis in your life because you've so strained out your serotonin system that you're running on your adrenaline system, and that only works when there's an urgency. So you create urgencies so that you have the energy to just do your normal everyday lives. That was me on Sunday morning for a long period of time just to get up and get through this three times on Sunday so that I could go back to sleep or try to get some rest. And I realized that many of these pastors that fall, some of them, it's just pure evil, they're messed up, I get it. But many of them are God-loving men or women that didn't realize this could happen to them and didn't want to tell anyone because they're the pastor. They're the most spiritual person in the bunch, they think. They don't need help. They're the ones that help everyone else. And you can spend so much time there that it comes to a point where you will make decisions that would normally not even come across your mind because you're just drained. You're just looking to survive that next moment. I say that because there are people here right now that are feeling that way and you're unwilling to tell anyone about it because you think you got it under control. If you can just get past this next week, if you can just get past this next day, if you can just get past this next event, then everything will be better, but it won't. Let people help you. That's why we're a body. That's why a big part of why we exist. Second thing is address it holistically. Address it holistically. So that's the second point. Answer that question, why am I downcast? And then answer the next question, which is address it holistically. If it's a spiritual thing, address it spiritually. If it's emotional, emotionally. If it's psychological, psychologically. If it's physical, get physical help. So address all of those things. One of the things I realized is when I hit rock bottom, my body just shut down. There was a point where I went on vacation that summer. This is about four years ago, I think, when it really happened. I was heading into my vacation. It took off, and the first day of vacation, I slept for 12 hours that night. I mean, literally didn't move, and I woke up feeling like I'd had a hangover. Well, at least what I read hangovers were supposed to feel like. <laughs> That's not recorded, I don't think. And then and the next night, same way. I went, I went a whole week of vacation, sleeping 12 hours a night and waking up feeling like I hadn't slept a wink. And that's when I knew my body had just shut down. And so for me personally, I, I couldn't get over that. So I realized I have to do something physically because I don't even have the energy to make the changes that I had begun to identify spiritually I needed to make in my life. And so for me, my choice was, and through counsel, to get some medication that would help level me out physically, get my head above water, so that I was in a spot to begin to address the other issues in my life that had helped lead me to this spot. Not just my circumstances, because it wasn't my circumstances, it's how I was responding to them. But at that point, I needed help to at least be able to address those things. And so that was my journey as I went through that, and it was, uh, 
really what helped me tremendously until I could uh, begin dealing with some of the scheduling in my life, with the managing of my energy, with exercise, and with my spiritual life that were weak during that time because I just didn't have the energy to even maintain them. And so it was probably about a nine month to a one year period that I needed that to address those things and get them in place and get my priorities and have the strength to do that before I could wean myself from the medication and feel like I was okay again at that point. Because these systems don't just restore themselves overnight. They often take a year to three years of regular sleep, of regular exercise, of diet, for those systems to be healed uh, the way your body heals them. Second, second thing is, is a, a directional thing as well. I put my hope in God. I put my hope in God, not temporal things or people. It's the second part of the refrain in the passage. After you ask the question, he gives us the ultimate big picture solution. So look three times it says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. See, the ultimate solution is not in this world. You must embrace this kind of a, a, a eternal perspective. And much depression and discouragement is based on putting our hope in temporal things. And here, here's one thing I've learned through this, ser- this situation and this experience in my life, is that death is ultimately the cause of all discouragement and depression. It may be a physical death, that comes into our life, but ultimately, oftentimes, it's the death of an ideal or something that we dreamed about. It may be the death of the marriage you thought you're gonna have. It may be the death of a child that you thought you're gonna have, and I don't mean physically it dying, but it didn't turn out the way that you thought it was gonna be, or that child didn't become what you thought they were gonna become. It may be the death of a career you thought you were gonna have, the death of the health that you thought you were gonna have, or the retirement you thought you were gonna have. It's some kind of dream or some kind of ideal that you put your hope in and you bank your happiness on. And when it dies, part of you dies with it. And part of that's just naturally part of life, but when, when we put our hope in so many temporal things, that can and only will disappoint us, we set ourselves up for this kind of discouragement and depression. I know personally, uh, I had to work through a number of things during the season, but one key issue I had to deal with was that my identity was not tied up with my performance or my success. In fact, I began to realize how much failure is a normal part of the Christian life. I'm not talking about failure because we're just lazy and we're sitting and playing video games and wondering why the bills aren't getting paid. I'm talking about failure that even when you're doing your best in your circumstances, things just don't go the way you want them to go. And you often can't control the outcome like you want. That was difficult for me. That was hard to begin to realize that I may work hard, I may put everything I have into a situation or into my family or into my work or into my ministry and it not turn out 
the way I wanted it to. People won't do the things that I prayerfully considered and studied and, and shared with them. They may go and head off in a totally different direction. And for me to not take that personally and not feel like it's a failure on my part was really hard for me at that point. And so until I was able to separate that aspect and realize that it wasn't so much about my circumstances, even though my circumstances were real, they were tough, but what was more difficult was how I was responding to them and how I was putting my hope in the outcome of these things rather than in God. And as he's begun to change that in me, he's begun to help me recognize that, you know what? These probably won't be the worst circumstances I face in my life. It's gonna get worse before it ever gets better. The Bible promises that. Isn't that good news today? But a greater truth is that this is not the final story. And part of our journey is putting to death the things that are trying to kill us. You see, even the psalmist recognized this. And in this psalm, he said, at one point in it, he says, Lord, send your light, send your hope to guide me and lead me back so that I can go to the altar of God and there I will find my joy. See, we just read that and think, oh, that's really a cute phrase, but we don't stop to think, what is he talking about? Do you know what happened at the altar of God in the Holy of Holies? One thing happened there, death. Tons and tons of death. They would slaughter animal after animal after animal on that altar. And if you were there worshiping and watching that, two things would have probably been very apparent to you as a worshiper. One is, whoever this God is, he takes sin very seriously. Because every time his people put their hope in something other than him, i.e. sin, a sacrifice was required. Someone had to pay for that with their life. So this God, he is serious, he is just, he is holy. And you would have to get that picture when you saw all that blood, all those carcasses laying all over the place in the midst of that worship. But another thing would become very apparent as well is that this must be a very merciful God. Because every time that animal was slaughtered on that altar, it should have been you and it should have been me. And this God loves his special creation so much that he's willing to take your consequences in mind and place them on an animal so that you could know how much he loves you. And the ironic thing is, is those animals never did one thing to forgive our sins. They simply pointed to the one who would come. The one who would truly face discouragement, truly face depression because he would be separated from the very one thing that, that gives us hope. 
He would be separated from his father whom he'd known from all eternity in those moments. And not just separated, he would experience his wrath. He would experience his disappointment thrust down upon him when he'd done nothing wrong. So that people like you and me who are so prone to put our hope in the broken and temporal things of this world would have a visual that screams through time and eternity that God is gonna be faithful to what he said because if he would heap our sins, if he would hold up his holy and perfect son and make him suffer like that, then we would know without a doubt he had to be paying for our sins because he lived such a perfect life. God had to do that because no one deserves that. But why, God? Why was his soul so discouraged, so depressed, so broken at that moment. Because he wanted us to have a hope that while he was taking our sin, our brokenness, that at the same time he was transferring his righteousness and his reward to any person who will trust him. That's how much God wants you to have hope. Doesn't mean he's gonna take away your challenges. Doesn't mean he's gonna make life a nice, easy bed of roses. Far from that. If our savior went to that length, do you think if we're followers of him that we're gonna have a nice rosy life here? He didn't do that to make life easy for us. He did that so that we could walk through the deepest and darkest moments that this world could throw at us and never lose hope. To know that you're never alone, that you don't have to be ashamed of experiencing the difficulties and discouragement that this world can throw at you, but that you can have hope I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you're walking through, but he does. If you want to hold it, hold to yourself. That's your prerogative. But if you want some people, and if you want a person to help shoulder that load with you, then you've come to the right place. And you've come to the right person because he knows what it's like. Let's pray.